we come to the reading of God's Word, we'll be reading this morning from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Hear now the Word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to bless his word by his spirit. Heavenly Father, our own sense of love for you is lacking. Our own sense of your majesty and glory is weak compared to the reality. Our appreciation for the wisdom of your scripture is not what it should be. Would you lift up our hearts today so that we can focus upon your word and have a greater delight and appreciation of you, Lord. Help us to worship better by knowing you better as you reveal yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I was listening to a podcast last week, and one of the speakers on the podcast said something very much in passing about our national divisions. One of the things he said was, we lack a national moral direction. And this was not a Christian speaking, actually. It was a non-Christian saying, our nation doesn't have a moral direction. We do not know why we functionally exist. And I thought that was interesting. I actually, the more I thought about it, the more I thought we are rather directionless. And that directionlessness, if I can make up a word, I think that's a word, maybe. Our directionlessness shows itself in our national life. Um, We don't know where we're going. We don't know why we're going wherever we are going. Um, Largely, Americans have lost a sense of purpose or value. Uh, Mostly, we seem to value getting our way at the moment. That seems to be the goal for everybody. Can we all just get our way? And so because everyone is tugging in a different direction, we are more directionless than we have been at any previous time in our nation. We're more untethered from the shared values that we used to find in God and what he says about us. And so that plays itself out. Now, I I, I say this actually being somebody who's really sensitive to nostalgia. I do not want to... uh, indulge in nostalgia when we think of the past. I don't think I'm indulging in historic revisionism when I say these things. Uh, America, we were never morally perfect people. We were always morally confused. We've always been hypocritical as a nation from the beginning. But even from the beginning, there was a certain moral fabric that held together the common life people had in society. I think that's fair to say. I think that you can say that without being nostalgic about the past. Uh, We used to be able to assume certain moral realities that we were convinced we had been given by God. And now as a nation, we sort of guess at who we are. We intuit what virtue is, but we don't value the idea of God coming in and actually telling us what is good and telling us what is bad. Um, The idea of God having expectations of us or telling us what those expectations are to to many Americans just seems scandalous. This is the air that we breathe at the moment in a way that it wasn't in the air before. This would already be a disaster if you were talking about the civic and national life of, of a country. And I do think it is a genuine disaster that will keep playing itself out unless the Lord brings revival to our land. And we should pray for him to do that. But it's an even bigger problem when it happens within the church. Uh, We expect people who don't love God not to care about God's law. We expect that. That's, That's normal. But if even the church doesn't have 
an appreciation of God's law or what God's law tells us about himself and about ourselves, then we have major problems on our hands if even the church doesn't care about what God's law says. So when you talk about the law of God, I think Americans, many Americans, and especially, I'm speaking specifically of Christians at this point, are baffled by what to do with God's law. Um, especially the first two-thirds of their Bible, right? They just say, you know, give me a New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs in it. And I don't know what to do with the rest of it, you know. There's, there's sort of this assumption among a lot of Christians that the New Testament is the most important. The Old Testament is sort of like homework that Jesus did for us so that we don't have to think about the Old Testament, right? And that attitude plays itself out in many ways. One of the ways it plays itself out is that for many Christians, the Ten Commandments aren't really seen as binding. They're seen as something that um, shows us our guilt maybe, but there's not much more use for the Ten Commandments beyond that. Um, They'll say something like this, Jesus came, he was a perfect man, he kept the law, and now that he kept it, God doesn't have any expectations for us to keep it. Um, It's more pervasive than you might think, actually. Um, And actually, maybe even in our own hearts, we have that impulse. Maybe we would never say it aloud, but maybe we do secretly think it, and we use it to sort of excuse some of our behavior. Um, For some, we have a choice to make. There's a misunderstanding, really, of what God's expectations are. They say, well, we can either live by grace and have no law-keeping in our lives, or we live by the law. And that is simply a false dichotomy. It's not a choice that the Bible gives to us. Um, It is true the law plays no role in our justification. If you look at the book of Galatians, and that was my first sermon series here, was the book of Galatians, you do learn that the law has no power to save. But to say that it has no role in the Christian life at all is simply wrong as well. There's almost this idea that if we're justified by grace, that somehow leaves no room for God's commandments, for example, to help us live the Christian life. And yet, what do you find with Paul? Paul never said that Christians don't love or keep the law. What he said in the book of Galatians was, it is not a means of our being justified. But that doesn't mean that he removes completely any sense of our uh, impulse to be obedient. And by the way, if you weren't here for the Galatians series, let me just say, this is incredibly good news. Um, If our peace with God depended upon our goodness or our law keeping in any way, That would only be bad news for you and me. It would only be bad news for you and me that our peace with God is hinged upon our law keeping because I have not been good enough to deserve justification. I haven't been good enough to deserve being seen as righteous in God's sight. And so our peace with God actually does depend on law keeping, but it is Jesus's law keeping. And so Jesus is the law keeper, and that is great news. That is the best news, because Jesus kept the law all his life. Jesus never broke the law. He exemplified law keeping. If you want to know what it looks like to live a good life, you look at the life of Jesus. You study the Gospels. You see how he composed himself. You see how he spoke to others. You see how he loved people. You see how he cared for other people. And what you're seeing is a living illustration of what it looks like if someone was to actually keep the Ten Commandments. And Jesus affirms the goodness and he affirms the persistence of the law, which is what we're talking about here this morning. Jesus has a positive view of the law. So do the other New Testament writers. One of the places you see the the law being cited directly by Paul is where he writes to the children in the church. And he's writing to these children in the church, and he's treating them as fellow Christians. And what does he do? He quotes the fifth commandment. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he quotes it word for word from the Ten Commandments, and he expects them to obey the fifth commandment. It would be a curious thing to do if the law is gone, if the law is abolished, if the law is done for and no longer is a standard for us now that Christ has come. Instead, what you see is the law is alive and well, but now... Paul appeals to Christians on a different ground for their obedience. You see, this attitude toward the Old Testament, um, this negative attitude toward the Old Testament has its foundation in a wrong belief that Jesus at his coming fundamentally fulfills the law in such a way that he actually does away with the law. or He does away with any obligation that we have to the law. And so instead, we need to make sure that we don't just bring our own ideas in here and say, well, how would I 
deal with this. We actually want to hear Jesus. We want to let Jesus himself define his relationship to the laws of Scripture, the laws of the Old Testament. Because whatever Jesus thinks of the law, that is what we should think as well. I think that's a good principle to have. Uh, Whatever Jesus thinks of the law, we should think the same thing. Now, all of this is me sort of setting the stage for what we have before us this morning. Because when you talk about truly transformative texts in the New Testament, that the sort of texts that fundamentally inform how we think about Jesus and how we think about the rest of our Bible, it is really hard not to put this specific text at the forefront when we're talking about how we're going to think through what God expects of us as Christians. One of the things that Jesus does here is he corrects a misconception. For another thing, he puts his relationship to the law in a positive light, not a negative light. Uh, And then finally, he lays out for us what our own attitude toward the law should be. So let's, let's take what we have here and let's look at it under two points, just two headings this morning. We have the fulfillment of the law, And then we have the function of the law. Uh, Jesus wants for us to be able to pray Psalm 119 and mean it. Now, Psalm 119 is really long, but if I could boil Psalm 119 down into a single sentence, it would be this. I love your law, O Lord. And, And Jesus wants us to appreciate the law in such a way that we could pray that from the heart and mean it. So we need Jesus' words to prod us towards seeing the force for good that the law can play in the lives of redeemed people. We need to make sure we do not only see the law as a source of condemnation. So when we read the law, we want to see, yes, I am guilty of breaking this. But now, God, I see where you're pushing me toward as well. I see what you want for my life, not just what you don't want for my life. So first, we have the fulfillment of the law. You see this in verse 17 really plainly. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So how does Jesus want us to think about the Old Testament scriptures? When it comes to thinking about the the law of God, what we we see is two possible opposite errors, right? On the one hand, you have those who think that fulfillment of the law means that now we're freed from the law in the sense that God's commandments don't even matter. And we can abandon God's law and we can even break God's law. And this error would go so far as to say that even the Ten Commandments are optional. Even the Ten Commandments are unnecessary. Or maybe they would even say that it's problematic to teach others the Ten Commandments. Now, on the other extreme, on the other hand, you have those who might be tempted to copy the scribes and the Pharisees in the way that they carefully and literally observe the law, but they miss the real substance. Um, this person might be tempted to copy these religious leaders, even though the Messiah... Uh, has come. They say, look, we need to still live like the Pharisees. We still need to live like the scribes. Uh, In other words, what we call this is we call this legalism, right? We say you keep the law so that you can have peace with God. Or legalism also looks like this, inventing laws that God never made and telling people to be bound by them. That word legalism sometimes can be trouble because it actually means two different ideas and both of them are problems. You don't want to make up laws that God never wrote. And you also don't want to ever teach someone that their peace with God hinges upon their ability to keep the law. Both of those types of legalism are a problem. Um, Jesus pushes back against both of those temptations here. Jesus pushes it back against both types of extremes. Both ideas that the law doesn't matter now and the law is actually going to bring you peace with God. And Jesus says no to both of those. So what does he do? Uh, He pushes back against the first idea in verses 17 and 18, the the verses we're reading right here. And then the second temptation, that temptation toward legalism, he pushes back against that in verses 19 and 20, which we'll get to in the second point. But what does Jesus do here in verse 17 to push back against people who think that the law is going away with his arrival? Well, look what he says. He says, don't think... He wants us to not think this. (laughs) 
Do not think this, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Um, in, In essence, Jesus is saying, whatever you think about the law, if you think of it as abolished, you've got it wrong. You have gone too far. You have misunderstood me and you've misunderstood my purpose. That's the first thing he's saying here. Uh, In other words, he's giving us guardrails to protect us from the extremes. He is setting us to make sure that we know where the the lines are so that we know we shouldn't cross them in either direction. Uh, He's giving us guardrails to protect us from uh, what we call antinomianism. Now, antinomianism, that's not a word I made up. I think the other word I said before was a made-up word. Antinomianism is not a made-up word. Uh, antinomianism just has two parts. There's anti, which you can probably guess what that means. But the, the Greek word namos means law, and it means against law. It means to oppose the law. And it's a doctrinal t- treatment that we've already spoken about. I just didn't use the word. It's this belief that God's law is not relevant to Christians today, aside from maybe showing us that we're guilty in God's sight. They'd say that's the only thing the law is good for. The law is only good for condemning you. It's only good for showing you that you're not good. But they would say you wouldn't use the law, for example, to help you grow in holiness. You wouldn't use the law to help you uh, be a, a more committed follower of Christ. Instead, the law only has a negative role. And, and this belief is an error, and, and Jesus totally rejects it. Why? Because he says, I have not come to abolish the law. So he's very clear the law is still valid in some sense. It doesn't go away. Jesus, doesn't, uh, do, Jesus says that his work is a work of fulfillment, not abolition. Right? Fulfillment doesn't include abolition. Whatever, whatever Jesus does for Christians, he doesn't abolish the law. He doesn't destroy it. He doesn't cancel it. He doesn't nullify it. He doesn't remove it. He doesn't make it uh, unimportant. Instead, he fulfills it. So based on this text, whatever the word fulfillment means, Jesus is, is helping us work out how to understand his fulfillment. And he says, whatever we do, we should exclude from our interpretation the idea that the law doesn't matter. So when you're working out fulfillment, make sure you see Jesus as something like completing the law and not removing the law. Um, Based on the rest of the New Testament, uh, we also can't read Jesus as saying that everything stays the same with his coming either. You read the book of Hebrews what you see there is that Jesus, Hebrews belabors this, by the way, that Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law. And he fulfills it in such a way that we don't need sacrifices now. Now we don't need the sacrificial law. We don't have a temple standing anymore. Um, there are aspects of the Torah, aspects of the law, that we have a different relationship to now as Christians. So I want to make sure that I, I say this. There's a balance in what Jesus is telling us. The difference between abolition and the difference between fulfillment. So we don't practice the ceremonial law, which includes the cleanliness laws, the sacrificial laws, the feasts. Not because they're done away with, but because the one that they all pointed to has come and he has made the once for all sacrifice. So there is no need for more sacrifices. The one that all of those things were pointing to is here. Um, The author of Hebrews calls them the shadows. He says those sacrifices, those ceremonies, they were shadows. And he says Jesus is the substance that the shadows were cast off of, right? So when you, uh, when you, uh, someone's standing in front of a light and you see a shadow on the ground, you don't think to yourself, wow, Adam looks flat and dark and uh, splayed across the ground today. No, you say, that's Adam's shadow. Right? You don't identify him with the shadow. You recognize it for what it is. And the author of Hebrews says, in essence, if you keep living in the ceremonial law, it's almost like you're talking to shadows. You're dealing with shadows. But he says, no, put your face on Jesus directly. You know, don't, don't keep looking at these ceremonies because there's no life in the ceremonies. The life is in the substance and Jesus is the substance. So we don't need those shadows anymore because Jesus fulfilled those shadows. The ceremonies still matter because Christ matters and because those ceremonies led us to him. But we don't keep acting out the shadow. We embrace the substance. 
That isn't the case with the moral laws of Scripture, which are the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law. So if you ever think to yourself, what does God want from me? What is God's moral expectation? What does he still expect from me even today? One of the things you can do is you can simply go to the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of exactly what God expects of us. The Ten Commandments aren't done away with. They aren't gone. They are still totally relevant. In fact, if you go through the New Testament, even after the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, you go through the book of Acts, you go through the letters of Paul, the letters of James, the letters of Peter, the letters of John, what you actually can do is see that all of them still expect us to keep the Ten Commandments. They continue to hold up all Ten Commandments to us and say, these are still valid. Keep God's law. That's the, that's the thing that they're, they're telling us. So, and these, by the way, they exist before the Ten Commandments are even written. Before the Ten Commandments are even written, God's moral law is woven into the fabric of the universe. But what he did for us in the Ten Commandments is a great blessing because he took what could be rather nebulous, could be hard to understand, and he took it and he put it into a simplified form so that we could say, this is what God expects of us. So... What is fulfillment, though? What's the fulfillment that Jesus does with the law? Matthew uses this word fulfill. In fact, you go through the book of Matthew, you find that he uses the word fulfill a lot in the text. Matthew loves the word fulfill. And one thing that stands out in Matthew's gospel, even over, the, over and above the rest of the gospels, is Matthew loves to tell a story. And then in the middle of the story, say, Jesus did this to fulfill what was spoken in the prophets. And so he'll frequently just stop what he's doing and point to a text of scripture and say, Jesus is fulfilling that right here. Jesus is fulfilling that right here. Over and over, um, nearly a dozen times in Matthew, he does this. And so over and over he's saying, Jesus did this to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. So I think that it's fair to understand fulfillment as meaning when God acts on his redemptive purposes to make his promises come true. When God makes the promises of scripture come true, that's a fulfillment. He's making this thing that was there come alive. He's, we're seeing in action this thing that was only words before. Now we actually see it lived out and done. And so when the promises come true, that is fulfillment. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So he, not only does Jesus make the promises of Scripture come true, he actually keeps the law. He actually fulfills the law. One of the things you see in the Bible is this expectation that this law is supposed to be kept. It's supposed to be kept. And the whole Old Testament is a story of people intentionally not doing that. Just not doing it over and over again. They're not fulfilling the law. And then Jesus comes along and he says, it's time that someone keep this. And he does. And so we need to understand ourselves as saved by the lawkeeper. We're saved by the one who did that thing that we were powerless to do, that we weren't doing. And we were trying, perhaps, and we weren't doing it. And Paul says that if we are saved by Jesus' death, how much more will we be saved by his life? So the point that Jesus makes, the point that Paul makes, is that we should not denigrate, we should not talk down on the law, because it is the thing that Jesus came to make come true. Why would we see that as a bad thing, when all of, of biblical history is oriented toward making sure that it does finally happen? Why would we ever say that that is a bad thing? Well, we tempted to, because it condemns us too. These words are true. What does the scripture say? The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of God remains forever. What does that mean in practice? It means that the law of God is still an expression of what pleases God. It means that we can read the scripture and we can know what pleases God. We can spend time in his word. The more we get to know it, what do we learn? We learn the heart of our father. We learn what it is that makes him happy. Um, all Ten Commandments continue to be the absolute, inerrant summary of God's moral law, even after Christ's coming. They're still useful. Uh, historically, in theology, we have three different ways we talk about the law being of, of use for us. The first way is something I've mentioned already, the fact that it does show us how far short we fall. Uh, every time I read the Ten Commandments, I think, yeah, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, and you could do that ten times. 
because there are all of these various ways in which we fall short. So when we have the word of God read to us and we hear the Ten Commandments, there is this condemning element to it every single time. Um, if you ever read one of the Ten Commandments and go, oh, I've just done so good at that, it just means you haven't thought about it enough. Um, it just is a constant reminder of the standards we're not living up to. Um, there's a second way that the, the commandments have been useful, that God ordains the, the law to, to be of use to us, and that is it restrains society. Um, you may uh, be surrounded by people who are unbelievers, but uh, there's little doubt that there are some people out there who would have committed murder if they had not realized or thought about the fact that God's going to judge them. There's a, maybe a fear of hell. Maybe there's a fear of God condemning them. It's not enough to save them. It's not enough to justify them. It's not the same as putting their faith in Jesus. But at the same time, they think, I don't want to go to hell someday. And so they don't kill the guy in traffic that they previously thought about. Now, there are certainly people who've still done it. But also, God's law has had a restraining effect. There are some people who do not do the bad that they would have done. Because God in his common grace has given us his word and spoken to people. And in some cases, they have said, well, I'm afraid of judgment. And so they don't do as bad as they could have. That's the second use of the law, just a restraint on society. Um, but there's a third way that uh, theologians have historically said that God's commandments are useful to us. And that is that they are a direction to us. They show us what pleases God. Um, they show us how we can order our lives so that God is honored honored in our lives um, so that we have something to aim at you know there's a target that we are are reaching for and we know what that is because we say well I've read the Ten Commandments I know what God expects of me and so there's this positive way that the Ten Commandments are used by God and his Holy Spirit in our lives um, there are many Christians out there who they trust in Jesus they love Jesus they want to please God in their lives and they are left with this question what makes God happy what what is it that my life is supposed to aim at positively? What am I supposed to do? And reading God's law is a great answer to that. It's a great help to that. And I think we need to really cultivate that way of thinking among uh, all of ourselves, all of each other. Um, we can look at the Ten Commandments and we can see exactly what God has in mind. All of that is to say... I think Paul summarizes it very well in 1 Timothy 1.8. He says, we know that the law is good. Um, David can say, I love your law, O Lord. Um, the law is helpful. It is a blessing, even when it shows us hard things about ourselves. So Jesus fulfills the law. He wants us to know that. He, he doesn't abolish it, though. That's what he leads off with so that he can help us to sort of fundamentally understand what is good about his law and what his function in human history and, his, and the history of salvation is. But the second thing that this morning, we see Jesus presents us with the function of the law. What is the law for? What does it do? We'll read verses 19 to 20. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So before Jesus was avoiding one error, he was avoiding the error of antinomianism. He's avoiding the error of saying the law doesn't matter, but here he's doing the other thing. Now he's avoiding the other error. It's the error of, of legalism, right? It's the error of thinking that formalism, of literalism, be careful with the way we use that word, um, following the letter of the law, he, he's avoiding the error of thinking that that is the same as keeping the law. Because he's in a culture there where everyone's got their own idea of what it looks like to actually follow the law. And Jesus says, you need to understand that we need to avoid the error that the law is not important. But we actually need to understand that with his coming, Jesus intensifies his expectation of what the law is in a different way than the scribes and Pharisees are doing. So Jesus doesn't actually cheapen the law. He enriches the law. Jesus doesn't just call for doing the right things and fulfilling the right ceremonies. He calls for something that the Pharisees and scribes never get apart from Jesus. He's, he's talking about a kind of righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees can't have if they won't trust in Christ. 
He is calling for true righteousness from the heart that goes far above the shallow obedience that the scribes and Pharisees have been living out. Um, this is the other error. It's the error of formalism. It's the, it's the error of wooden literalism with how they read the scripture. So let me see if I can explain this. When Jesus praises law-keeping, he's talking about living out the real intention of the law. In another place, he uses the word the spirit of the law. Um, we know what this looks like because Jesus himself lived this out. So if you want to know what it looks like to live out the spirit of the law, you look at the life of Jesus. You look at the life of someone who embodied all of these things. Um, there are two ways that Jesus models real law-keeping for us as Christians. The first way is this. He obeyed the law from a heart of love. He obeyed the law from a heart of love. He obeyed the law from the depths of his soul. He didn't just do it as an external formality, right? You, you remember how he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? He's not saying that and then not doing it. He's, he's expressing himself and where his, where his own law keeping comes from. He said, I keep, I keep the law and I do it from the heart and not only from the heart, but he says, with all my heart. In other words, my heart is in it. Every time that I do something that pleases God. He says, you should do that too. Love the Lord your God from the bottom of your soul. Not just as a religious observance. Which is what he's surrounded by. He's surrounded by religious observance. And he's seeing all these people who, whose heart is not, are not in it. Their hearts are not in it. In Mark 7, 21, he reminds us of this principle. He says, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, murder, adultery. He said this in John 8, 29. He said, he's talking about himself here. He says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So put these things together, right? What pleases God is obedience from the heart. And Jesus says, I do that. I do the things that please God. What is Jesus doing? He is showing us that he pleased God from the heart. He is modeling for us this thing that I, th I think we, we ought to be yearning for. This thing that we ought to desire. To live out the law from the heart. That's the first way that Jesus obeyed God. He obeyed God from a heart of love. Second, he obeyed the law fully and not selectively. He obeyed the law fully and not selectively. He did not only choose the parts that he kept. Um, think of the issues that he had with the Pharisees. They were absolutely selective about which parts of the law they took seriously, which ones they ignored. Um, one of the examples that we see is in Luke eleven twenty forty two. 42. He's talking about the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So in other words, he's dealing with their selectivity. Uh, there's another place where Jesus says, you guys have this Corbin rule that you, that you have, where you say, I don't have to take care of my parents if I donate the money I would have given them to God. And I can just dedicate it to God, and then I don't have to keep the fifth commandment to honor my parents. And Jesus says, you are being selective you're prioritizing one part of God's law and you're putting, a, putting aside this other part of God's law. He says, stop being so selective. Take care to keep all of God's law. And that's what Jesus does. So he is not selective in how he keeps the law. He actually is wholehearted and he is whole-lifed in the way that he, that he, that he observes God's law. Um, and what he's showing us is that law-keeping is something that is done from the heart. I hope that that's getting across to you, that he's not, he's not just saying, well, look, there are rules here, and we've got to keep all of these rules, and look, I can't be your savior unless I keep all of these rules, so stop tempting me. Instead, you're actually talking about things that Jesus loves and hates. When you're talking about sin, you're talking about something that from the heart he hates. When you're talking about virtue, you're talking about something that from his heart he loves because he loves his father and he wants to please the father. So you're getting right down to the root of his heart. And when you look at his heart, you see love for God. Um, he's, we, for a sinner like you or me, we know that we can't and that we won't keep God's law perfectly. For many, many people, that's reason enough to give it up entirely. 
right? They say we can't keep all of it, so why should we keep any of it? And at the same time, though, it's true. We actually can please God. Um, that is an important message Christians need to hear. Um, it's important that Christians actually hear it is possible to please God because in Christ we, we can please God. Now, we don't keep the law in order to be justified. This is not me telling you you can keep the law enough for God to finally love you. No, God loves you. you I don't have to qualify that. Um, it's not like your obedience comes first, then he looks and says, okay, now he's all right with me. No. It's the opposite, right? We have very different motives as Christians, right? We keep, we keep the law now, not so that he'll love us, but because of the one who has saved us and given himself for us. He's shown God's love to us, and we respond accordingly, right? So our obedience is responsive to God's grace. It's not causative of God's grace. It doesn't make us worthy of his grace. That is very good news if you have ever sinned, and it's good news for me. I'm, by the way, I'm not just reading this into the passage. Think about everything that's come before as we've gone through the Beatitudes, uh, as we've looked at the, the text before us, right? All of this was Jesus telling us what it means to be a Christian, telling us what it means to throw ourselves upon Jesus, what it means to be poor in spirit, to have no goodness of our own that we depend on. He's been telling us what it means to completely lean upon Jesus for peace with God. And then he showed us what it looked like to live that out. He, he showed us what it was to have a, a pure heart, to be peacemakers, to endure persecution. And now what does he do in our text? He builds off of all of these things. He's been laying the gospel before us. And he says, look, having received grace by trusting in Jesus, we become people who can now keep the law from the heart in a way that the Pharisees didn't understand and that they couldn't. Because they couldn't love the law because all they saw in it was condemnation. And so they could parrot obedience and they could mime obedience, but they couldn't do obedience. Certainly not the kind Jesus is talking about. In Christ... Our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. And it does that in two ways. One way is that we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. When we are united to Jesus by faith alone, the Father looks at us and he sees Christ the lawkeeper instead of Adam Parker the sinner, right? And he does that for each of you if you trust in Christ. He looks at you and he sees his righteous son. That's one sense in which our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. In sense of what we call imputation. God imputes to us the thing that wasn't true of us before, but is true of his son. But our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees in the sense also that we're enabled to actually please God from the heart, from good motives, and from a love for him. Something that, was, that the Pharisees were cut off from, something that they didn't have. And so God's intention is not just for us to be positionally more righteous than them. His intention actually is for us to live in a way that puts the Pharisees to shame. How do I know that? Look ahead in the text. And what you see is, I'm interrupting to give you a view of the schedule next Sunday because I'm going to be teaching these Chinese brothers uh, about it from our text. I'm not going to be preaching. Instead, Matthew's going to preach. So, in two weeks, <laughs> in two weeks, look at, the, look at the passages that are coming up in the text. What does Jesus do? He starts talking about murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and retaliation and giving and so on. What is Jesus doing? He is showing us in the coming weeks what it looks like to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. So, Today's sermon, very doctrinal. Not a lot of application, if I'm honest. In fact, I finished the sermon. I said, there's not a lot of application here. A lot of doctrine. And I remember thinking, it's okay. Be patient. The very next passage, we're going to get into incredible amounts of application. We're going to get very applicable uh, in, in the coming weeks. So uh, I tried to convince myself not to be insecure about the lack of application. <laughs> Just have to see uh, two weeks from now. Um, 
But he's going to show us what it looks like in practice to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And you will notice this theme running through all of them, which is keep it from the heart. He gets to the passage about murder. What does he do? He says, don't murder. And then he says, by the way, get down to the heart level when you're talking about murder. He gets to adultery. What does he do? He says, by the way, get to the heart level about adultery. Don't just not commit adultery, but have a heart that hates adultery. Um, and he does that with all of these commandments. So he's showing us and he's doing the application of this sermon here. And that's what we're going to be getting to in the next couple of weeks. So, again... Don't be afraid. We're going to get to real stuff. But at this point, we're just talking about the goodness of the law. We're talking about Jesus' appreciation of the law and the fact that it's still there and it's still good. So we're not talking about works righteousness. We're talking about pleasing God. We're talking about pleasing God who gave his son for us. Now that he's done what he has done for us, how will we respond? What should our life be shaped like? What should it look like? We respond like Paul says in Romans 12. What does he say we should do? He says, we make our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Right? We don't just go through religious motions. We make our whole life a sacrifice to him. We're talking about seeing the Bible telling us that we've done something wrong. And then we say, I am wrong, Lord. I am sorry. Help me to change for the sake of Christ, and then we take the steps to do that. Um, we respond to his grace by asking the question, Lord, how can I live to please you? And the answer we find is, is in the law, which is fulfilled by Jesus and never abolished. Now, this is what I really want to get at. One of the things, um, just as we're closing, really, um, one of the things that Christians often hear is that we can never please God. I, I nodded at this a moment ago. I wanted to put more attention on it. Um, we keep hearing, and maybe we just hear it from ourselves. I hope you don't hear it from this pulpit. But we oftentimes hear we can never please God, right? We're so sinful that we are incapable of pleasing God. Um, we sometimes hear it said in connection to Isaiah 64, 6, which tells us all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. How are we supposed to please God if we can't even do one good deed that would please God? Maybe you feel that way. You feel like such a spiritual failure. You say, I've never pleased God. I feel like I've never done anything that pleased God. And you look at this text in Isaiah and you lean on it and you say, this is why, this is why. I've never pleased God. I never can. But think about the context of Isaiah 64. God is talking about a people who are trying to live by their own righteousness. They're not trusting in him. They certainly are not setting their eyes on Christ. They're trying to commend themselves to God apart from faith. God hates works of righteousness apart from faith and love. He hates it. You have all of these places in scripture where he's talking to Israel and he's like, I am sick and tired of you going through the motions and your heart is never in it. What does he say? I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He would rather the Old Testament saints love him and never give one offering on the altar ever again. If he was going to choose, that's what he would pick. These people have no love for God. And they are not only not acting out, they're only acting out. They're only going through the ritual. And, and, and in case it's fair to say, to, and in that case, it is fair to say to someone like that, these righteous deeds without faith are like a polluted garment. And someone in that situation needs to be told that. But we take this and we universalize it and we say this is always true for everybody, even those who are in Christ. And I think that's an error. I think that's not what the passage is intending to say. How do I know that? Just read the Bible. What does Romans 8, 8 say? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Then what does he say in Romans 8, 9? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You're in the spirit. What's the implication? You can please God. Um, you have Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.9. He says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 
1 Thessalonians 2.4, it says that we speak not to please man, but to please God. In chapter 4 of the same book, Paul says that we receive from the apostles how we ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing. He says you are pleasing God. He's writing to these saints in Thessalonica and he's saying you can please God. You have been. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. The implication here is that with faith it is possible to please God. Listen to this, 1 John 3.22, he makes this similar point. He says, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So then you come to that passage in Isaiah, and I think that this helps you understand. He is talking about faith-filled people who love God from the heart, who are pleasing God. In other words, it is an error to say that you can't please God, that you can never please God, that you don't please God. The reality is God's word says that you do and that you can. To me, this is important because it's really It is chilling to Christians. It is discouraging to Christians for us to tell them that everything they do is filthy. Everything they do is unclean. Everything they do is unrighteous and it's not pleasing to God. And the apostles are basically writing letters to Christians and emphatically saying that they can please God. And that they have to make make that the aim of their life. What does it look like to do this? What does it look like to practice, in practice, to please God with our lives? Well... We see case study after case study from Jesus. He's going to show us that in the coming weeks. And, and he's also going, you can just look at his life if you want to see him practice what that looks like. So, so stay tuned. Uh, you will see. You will find out. Um, but there's a lot of direct application coming. It's just a little later. There's this moment in Philippians 4 where Paul is remembering gifts that the Philippians gave so that he could minister. So they sent Epaphroditus to, to Paul. And Epaphroditus brings these gifts. And do you remember what Paul says to, to the church of Philippi? He says, I am well supplied now with the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Did they send everything they could have sent to him? I highly doubt it. They did not leave themselves penniless. They could have sent more to Paul. They could have done more, they could have sent more, they could have sacrificed more, they could have given more, they could have gone without that cup of coffee, well, probably not coffee, but they could have gone without something and sent more than they did. Everybody at Philippi could think of ways that they didn't give as much as they should have and didn't sacrifice as much as they could have, and yet Paul looks at this meager gift that comes to him, and what does he see? He sees what God sees. He, he sees with the eyes of a father. He says, this is acceptable and pleasing to God. In all of its imperfections, in all of its flaws, in all that it was missing, in all the, that they didn't sacrifice and send, it was not a perfect gift. And yet he looks at them and he says, for the sake of Christ, this is pleasing to God. In themselves, these are not pleasing gifts. But because of Christ, it's like the dirty becomes clean. Um, When my kids were younger, actually this happened recently, so not even when they were younger. But one of the ways they they would show their love to me was they would bring me drawings. Bring me these little drawings that they drew. And, and you know, if they brought me a picture and it was a f- drawn by one of my children when they were four, you know, if I showed it to you, you'd probably say, hmm, that is a picture that only a father could love. You know, it's, that's a tree, maybe. Uh, but, you know, you humor the child. And if you were honest, you'd be like, that is the ugliest tree I've ever seen in my life, you know. But as their father, do you know what I see? I see a picture of an ugly, misshapen tree that has purple leaves instead of green leaves. It's not very close to reality. It's not very close to what the goal or what it should be. But do you know what else I see? I see down in the very corner of the picture, I see this little word scribbled, I love you, daddy. Love your son. Love your daughter. You know what? I love my children. And however imperfect that picture might be, I accept it. And I don't accept it because of its perfection. I accept it because 
He is my son, and what he gave me, as weak and as misshapen as it is, and as misshapen as it might be, as far, as far short of the standard of reality it might be, it is from my child who loves me. Um, you need to also understand this, that God does not wink at our imperfect gifts. Instead, I need you to think of your gifts as being washed and cleansed by Jesus and made presentable. And then our gifts come into his presence, pleasing. So it is not the way a father, even Adam does, sort of wink at the picture and say, I will accept this with its flaws. It's almost as if it passes through the hand of the son, is perfected and then handed over. So I want you to know, Christian, you can please God. Not because you are good, but because you are in Christ and because your Father loves you in Jesus. The Father loves the Son. You are in the Son. And so because though you and I don't keep the law completely, we don't keep the law from the heart the way we should, we are in Christ who did keep the law. He kept it for us. And in Christ, God receives us. He will accept your worship Maybe you do that even here. You come in here, you say, I feel like the Philippians. I didn't give as much as I could have. I didn't give as much as I should have. My heart wasn't in it the way that it should. And yet he will accept your meager worship. He will accept your songs that are not sung fully from the heart. And he will see when you keep your com his commandments and you don't keep them perfectly, entirely from the heart. And he will look at you through Christ, through the lens of his son. And he will be pleased with you. Even as you endeavor all the time to become more and more holy, more and more righteous, you want your gifts to be more and more pleasing in his eyes. Is this the aim and design of your life? Do you want to please God? Is your life oriented around what pleases the Father? Do you want that? Do you want to please the Father? Once you resolve that, you know, I spoke of the directionlessness and the purposelessness of our own nation. We take responsibility for ourselves. Our lives do not have to be purposeless, so purposelessness or directionlessness. God has given you a direction. Mm -hmm. He has given you a purpose. He said you are to live to please God. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you. That you did not abandon us in our sin. Instead, you sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to keep your law, to fulfill your law. That we might be seen as the fulfillers of that same law. And, and even now, you've removed the fear that might have been ours and you've replaced it with love. You've replaced it with a desire to obey. Would you give us that desire? Would you give us our heart's desire? to please you, to know you, to trust in your son. We ask you to do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.